0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. For the last two episodes, we've been looking at the political transformation of the Hittite Empire. But this isn't just a political shift. The rise of the Mitanni Empire has left an indelible impression on Anatolia. The Hittites were already quite famously accepting of foreign cultures, and so it's perhaps no surprise that the Hurrians would be added to this list. However, both the weakness of the 1400s and the later integration of temporarily Mitanni regions like Kizawatna and Kabur accelerated the pre-existing borrowing habit of the Hittites and created a distinct Middle Hittite culture. This is reflected in some quite fascinating contemporary tablets, which tell us a lot about this interesting cultural fusion, and also show us about Hittite ideas of medicine, science, and religion. Indeed, King Tudhaliya himself married a Hurrian wife, who was the mother of Arnuwanda, suggesting an intimate familiarity with Hurrian practices all the way at the top. But before we look at the Hurrian influences, it's important to note that Hurrian is not the only outside faith that's influencing the Hittites, and indeed Mesopotamian worship styles and philosophies are still heavily influential here. Last time, we mentioned a certain power broker named Kantuzili, the man who won the civil war at the start of Tudhalia's reign and allowed young Tudhalia to take the throne. We know very little about his life after the war, though one assumes he remained decently influential for a number of years or decades afterwards. However, at the end of his life, he seems to have fallen ill. Now, when you or I fall ill, we naturally go to the medical experts for diagnosis and treatment, and so too did Cantuzili. In fact, he went to the best medical expert he knew, the gods themselves, in this prayer my deity has become angry that deity has turned aside his eyes elsewhere and does not permit cantuzili to act whether that deity is in heaven or whether he is in earth O you ishtanu shall go to him go speak to that deity of mine and tell him this transmit the following words of cantuzili Kantuzili is directing his prayer most directly at Ishtanu, a native Hattian sun god who may also be related to the sun goddess of Arina, one of the protective deities of the royal house. This is part of why we're pretty sure that this Kantuzili is the same one as played a role in Tudhalia's ascension, for only someone within the royal house would have any business invoking so major a deity as this. But note what he wants this sun god to do. He wants a message delivered by the sun god to Cantuzili's personal god. What follows is probably one of the best illustrations of what the personal god relationship was meant to be. My God, ever since my mother gave birth to me, you, my God, have raised me. Only you, my God, are my name and my reputation. You, my God, have joined me up with good people to an influential, strong place. You, my God, directed my doings. My God, you have called me, Kantuzili, the servant of your body and your soul. My God's mercy, which I have known since childhood, I know and acknowledge it. And the more i grew up the more i attested by god's mercy and wisdom in everything never did i swear by my god and never did i then break the oath what is holy to my god is not right for me to eat i have never eaten and i did not therefore defile my body with these things Never did I separate an ox from the pen, Never did I separate a sheep from the fold. I found myself bread, But I never ate it by myself. I found myself water, But I never drank it by myself. Each of these I shared with you. A bit of a tangent, But just how different is all this from Christian prayer? Indeed, we talk today about a personal Jesus, or the Christian God, as a being with whom we have a direct relationship. But we know from the Bible that this concept extends far into the Old Testament. The Hittites saw themselves as individuals with a direct relationship with the divine, which permeated their entire lives, without whom nothing at all could be accomplished. This idea has been present since early in the very earliest of Sumerian faith, and is still present today in modern Christianity. But, if we look at the similarities where men have, through all of human history, seen the divine as both an intimate and universal force, then we must also look at the differences, for it would be a mistake to say that the Hittites directly worship the Abrahamic god just under a different name and set of rituals. There are differences here that can be ascribed to cultural changes. Most strikingly, the idea that Cantuzilli considers his god to be his name and his reputation. Does this mean that Cantuzilli's misdeeds reflect badly on his god? Does this mean that Cantuzilli is entitled to some portion of the god's glory? Though you can find an idea that each worshipper should live in a wholesome fashion in order to reflect well on God in modern worship, this isn't, as far as I know, emphasized anywhere outside perhaps the Mormon community. Whatever the case, the biggest difference between the modern faith and ancient faith is the context of the prayer itself. Cantuzilli's personal God has turned his face away and is simply not listening, and so he's gone to another God to coax the personal God into listening to one more sincere entreaty. This is, of course, impossible in a monotheistic and an eternally forgiving context of the Christian faith. In any case, the prayer continues. Were I now to recover, would I not recover on account of you, O God? Were I to regain my strength, would I not regain my strength at your word, O God? Life is bound up with death, and death is bound up with life. A human does not live forever. The days of his life are counted. Even if a human lived forever, an evil sickness of man were to be present, would it still not be a grievance for him?" Now, interestingly, I've come across another translation of this same prayer, which renders that last line as, Were man to live forever, it would not concern him greatly, even if he had to endure grievous sickness. I don't myself read Hittite, so I can't adjudicate here, but it's very interesting to see that whichever thing CantuZili is trying to say, there's clearly some philosophical thought going on. A level of abstraction we may take for granted, but which anthropologically shows a fair bit of complexity to Hittite thought. We may look at this and consider it as a fairly banal statement, but in fact, even today there are numerous cultures, mostly smaller groups with minimal Western influences, that do not have that sort of abstraction in their mental toolkit. We have to be careful not to promote narratives of linear progress when we discuss this sort of thing. For sure, this isn't the first example of abstract thinking in the written record. But the fact that CantuZili can reach such a reflexive level, even in the fairly backwards Hittite kingdom, tells us that abstract thought has, by the late Bronze Age, been integrated pretty much everywhere in the Near East, at least everywhere educated. Anyway, the prayer continues. Now, may my God open his innermost soul to me with all his heart, and may he tell me my sins, so that I may acknowledge them. Either let my God speak to me in a dream, or let my God open his heart and tell me my sins so that I may acknowledge him, or let a seeress tell it to me, or let a diviner of the sun god tell it to me from a liver. May my God open his innermost soul to me with all his heart, and may he tell me my sins so that I may acknowledge them. Today, we might ask God for a sign, then leave it at that. But for Kanduzili, there are a specific and known set of ways in which these signs might appear, very particular ways in which the gods may communicate with mortals. Dreams and divination rituals can take a number of shapes, but Kanduzili is letting his personal God know that he is, so to speak, watching the mailbox, waiting for the mail to arrive. You, my God, return to me reverence and strength. O Sun God, you are the shepherd of all, and your message is sweet to everyone. My God, who was angry at me and rejected me, may the same one consider me again and keep me alive. My God, who gave me sickness, may he have pity on me again. I have toiled and labored in the face of sickness, but I cannot any longer. No sooner did thou scrape one evil thing off me, than you have brought back another in its stead. May the god's anger again subside, and may I be pleasing to his heart again. With this, Cantusili's message for his personal god ends. But the joy of polytheism is that you get to spread your bets around a bit. In what follows, he invokes the sun god Ishtanu directly. I find it interesting to note the differences between the two entreaties here. Establish again what is good, O sun-god, most vigorous son of Sin and Ningal. Your beard is of lapis lazuli. I, Cantuzili, your servant, humbly herewith call you lord and say to you, O sun-god, my lord, I, Cantuzili, herewith ask my god, and may my god listen to me. What have I, Cantuzili, ever done to you, my God? And in what have I sinned against you? You made me, you created me, but now what have I, Cantuzili, done to you? The merchant man holds the scales before the sun and falsifies the scales, but I, what have I done to my God?" Because of the sickness, my house has become a house of anguish. Because of the anguish, my soul drips away from me to another place. I've become like one who is sick throughout the year. And now the sickness and the anguish have become too much for me. And I keep telling it to you, my God. At night, no sweet dream overtakes me on the bed. And no favor is manifest to me. But now... My God, harness together your strength and that of my protective deity. I never even inquired through a seeress whether you, my God, ordained an illness for me from the womb of my mother. Now I cry for mercy in the presence of my God. Hear me, O my God. Do not make me one who is unwelcome at the king's gate. Do not denigrate my reputation in the presence of other humans. Those to whom I did good, none of them saves me. You, my God, are father and mother to me. Only you are my father and mother. This is the end of the text as we have it, but it gives us a solid look as to what a standard appeal to the gods looked like in Hittite times. But at the same time, we know that large chunks of it are not native to the Anatolian peninsula. Scholars can identify whole passages which have been lifted from hymns to Shamash, the Akkadian sun god. The final composition has been rewritten by Hittite scribes, and the prayer as a whole is Hittite in character, since, of course, it seems to have been prayed by a devout Hittite man, but the Hittite religious tradition has always owed a great deal to Mesopotamia. In all that discussion of faith traditions, though, we may have forgotten the actual point of that long prayer, though we can be certain that Cantuzilli has not forgotten it. CantuZilli is sick, and he would dearly like to not be sick anymore. Which brings us to the main point of today's episode. What are CantuZilli's options when he gets sick? In short, what do we know about Hittite medicine? My very favorite academic article on the topic was written by a German named Hans Gutterbach. It begins, When I was asked to report on Hittite medicine, My first reaction was to say, there is no Hittite medicine. He then spends the next few pages explaining that, just as he had said in the first sentence, there's essentially nothing worthy of being called medical scholarship within the Hittite corpus. In that sense, he's completely correct in that assessment. The Hittite kingdom was a backwater. Even at its height, when it was politically competitive with Egypt and Mitanni, an era which we will finally be getting to look at in the next few episodes, it was culturally irrelevant. The Hittites took culture from their neighbors, but there's very little transfer back into the Near East of Hittite culture. Indeed, about the only place that people argue for Hittite cultural transmission is in the Aegean and the very early Proto-Greek peoples, who were about the only folks less culturally relevant at this point than the Hittites themselves. Of course, if we're talking about matters of high culture, we're talking about a tiny minority of the population, even in the best of places. Contemporary Egypt and Babylonia may be boasted 1-2% literacy rates, and there are folks who will tell you that even that 2% is way too high. However, if Babylon's literacy rate was, for the sake of argument, 2%, the Hittite rate was maybe half of a percent. And worse, that literacy is split among multiple languages, for there were far more relevant languages to learn in Anatolia. Not only was there Hittite or Neshili, there was the native Hattian language of Anatolia, though this has been replaced by Neshili gradually over time. There are multiple West Anatolian languages, like Arzawan and Palaic, though the Palaics were being exterminated right around now by the northern Kaskans, who of course had their own language, but were almost certainly illiterate. Then any scribe being taught in the Eduba schools would need to learn classical Sumerian, as well as the standard dialect of Babylonian Akkadian, which had become the lingua franca of the entire Near East. And then, depending on circumstances, he may have needed to learn one of the Western Semitic dialects of Syria, such as Ugarit, or perhaps a language of one of the other major powers, such as Hurrian or Ancient Egyptian. Fewer scholars seems to have been correlated with less scientific achievement, and as we see multiple places in the record that Hittite kings often considered native doctors to be vastly inferior to those from Egypt or Babylon. Texts describing locally grown Hittite healing rituals are few and far between, and from a modern perspective, they seem to describe what could uncharitably be described as witch doctors, far more concerned with creating a spectacle than with doing anything which we would nowadays recognize as medicine. Even things such as stuffing a patient full of medicinal herbs, which has been known in Mesopotamia for centuries by this point, is notably absent except as texts which appear to have come from Babylon. It's hard to judge the quality of these early medicines, since it's often hard to tell just what plants they intended to use. But for the most part, the Hittites either didn't have this sort of remedy or they didn't intend to write them down very well, not even as well as the Hurrians. From another perspective, however, the idea that the Hittites lacked medicine completely is laughably wrong. While no one would dispute that the Babylonian medical tradition was recognized by the Hittite kings as superior, the very earliest Hittite law code includes multiple references to physicians. Physicians. Though it should be noted that even here, the word used for a physician, asu, is itself an Akkadian loanword. But most people couldn't afford a proper physician. Instead, we have a few interesting texts from more local healers. The first that I want to look at today is a procedure for curing sexual dysfunction undertaken by an Arzawan medical woman for an unnamed client. In or around Hattusha, it opens by announcing the purpose of the tablet, saying, This is what is to be done if a man lacks sexual potency, or if he's unable to act, quote, like a man to his woman. The ritual in total lasts for three days and begins quite naturally with an offering to the gods. Bread, fruits, wine, wool, and a cloak from the afflicted man are placed in an offering. These will all be used over the course of the procedure, though none seem themselves directly related to fertility. With the materials gathered, the client bathes, for cleanliness was critical in Hittite religion. The gods, it seems, were germaphobes. At the same time, a virgin woman was gotten from somewhere to help with the ritual. The medicine woman goes all out while this is being done and creates a gate out of reeds somewhere in the open country. This gateway is another critical aspect of Hittite medicinal magic, a threshold that creates a literal representation of a metaphorical transition from one state to another, in this case between impotence and potency. The client and the virgin woman are tied together, using the client's donated cloak. The male is then given a spindle and distaff, two tools in the traditionally feminine work of spinning wool into thread. The bound couple then walks through the reed gate, and as the man steps through, the feminine tools are taken from his hands and replaced by a bow and arrow. The medicine woman declares... I have just taken away womanliness from you and given manliness back to you. Further, throw away the behavior of a woman. Take up for yourself the behavior of a man. I suppose Bronze Age culture can hardly be faulted for exalting traditional gender roles, but this is not the end of the matter. It seems that this recorded one was destined to be a particularly tricky case. And indeed, it's possible that it's not a real case at all, but an example of what to do in a full-on situation uh, used for training other medicine women or other physicians trying to replicate this same ritual among many clients in Hattusha. Uh, Either way, the client now goes to test out his potency by going to sleep with the virgin woman, which raises even more urgently the question of who exactly this virgin woman was. Is this his fiancée and she's just a virgin because he's impotent? Is this like a courtesan or is this like a slave or what? I don't know. The text is unconcerned with this question because women aren't important. Instead, it tells us that after a bit more ritual, the woman exited the bedchamber exclaiming that this man was made of nothing but feces and urine and that the fertility goddess Uliliyashi had not blessed him. Because of this, a more severe ritual was required. An altar was set up with bread and wine upon it and possibly a set of gifts for Uliliyashi. The man then kneels at the altar, and the medicine woman then begins to pray aloud, addressing the goddess on the man's behalf while holding up the bread. Now, he has just come down before you as one on his knees. He is continually seeking after you, O goddess, for your godliness. Whether you are in a mountain, whether you are in a meadow, whether you are in a valley, wherever you actually are, come down to this man for his well-being. May the winds and the rain not continually strike your eyes." He is going to make you his personal deity. He will assign a place for you. He will give you a temple. He will give you a male servant and a female servant. He will give you oxen and sheep. He will make you a recipient of cultic vows. I am... Repeatedly entreating and calling upon you. Come, bring with you the moon, the stars, and the sun goddess of the earth. May female and male servants be running before you. May male and female deities be running before you. Come down to this man. You are his wife for the sake of children. Look after him yourself. May you continually be turned to him and speak on his behalf. Hand over your servant to him, and he will become a yoke for her. May he take his wife to himself. May he make sons and daughters for himself. They will be your male and female servants. They will continuously give rituals, thick breads, meal and libations for you." The man then eats of the bread and drinks of the wine, which have, in the course of the prayer, been transformed into the physical embodiments of the covenant between the man and the goddess. Though the matter at hand is sexual impotence, the ritual form being used is too similar to the bread and wine of a Catholic mass to miss. This prayer and eating ritual was repeated multiple times that day, ending with the offering of a lamb, which would be a communal meal for the man, the medicine woman, and likely a number of other people besides. The man's bedchamber would then be consecrated as an impromptu temple to the fertility goddess Uliliyashi, and he would go to sleep alone. This night was the moment of truth the event which three days of quite expensive ritual had been building to. If he sees the goddess in his dream that night, if she comes to him and offers some sexy times, then the man will dedicate the next three days of continuous worship of thanks to the god, and he's on the hook to give quite a bit to the goddess, including making her his personal god. This last, as already mentioned, is quite a significant step, and was likely counted at least as significant as the hugely expensive gifts mandated by the ritual. But, if this is the case, then the ritual has then been successful. However, no mortal can ever force a god to appear in dreams, or really do anything at all. And if all this coaxing does not cause the goddess to appear then the ritual can be repeated, as often as the man can afford. But then, some of you are frowning at your podcast player right about now, upset that I promised a description of Hittite medicine, and instead delivered what sounds like nothing more than a particularly elaborate bit of erotic role-playing. What part of this is meant to have cured the underlying biological problems which cause the man's impotence? But of course, I can't tell you why it worked beyond appealing to divine authority of the Hittite gods. But what I can say is that the Hittites were not stupid people. They were working with a different intellectual toolkit, and they had just as much mental ability as you, dear listener listening right now. And throughout Hittite society... Indeed, throughout the entire Near East, there was basically no disagreement that while this sort of ritual-based medical practice was not 100% effective, it was still reliable enough to be worth dedicating a tremendous amount of time, effort, wealth, and even in this ritual, probably a decent amount of emasculating humiliation. And the fact that they did not define the boundaries of medicine in the same way that we do means that their medicine was able to cure a much broader range of ailments. For example, we have another tablet from another medicine woman, this time named Mashtiga, a lady from Kizuwatna. Being from Kizawatna, she's practicing in Hurrian style. But note how these Hurrian methods seem to differ little from those of the West Anatolian woman that we just examined, telling us that there's a broad base of shared folk tradition in these matters throughout the region. And let me tell you, quite a lot of it is all influenced by the Hurrians. She says at the start of her tablet that... If a father and a son, or a husband and a wife, or a brother and a sister quarrel, I will treat them jointly. I will treat them as follows. Now, the structure of the following medicine is generally similar to the impotency cure, though naturally with some different details. It begins with the two arguers kneeling before an altar, probably a table that has been temporarily purified and consecrated for the purpose. All the materials required for the ritual have already been assembled somewhere nearby. The two begin by putting their hands upon the altar, where there is bread and cheese and wine laid out for the sun god, who will be managing the magic for this ritual. The medicine woman invokes the sun god, breaking the bread and cheese, then pouring out the wine for the god to consume. Then, the medicine woman grabs two small dolls made out of bread dough, little human-shaped figures that are even wearing tiny doll clothes and have their tongues sticking out. Then, she cuts off the tongues, puts them on top of the doll's head, and pushes the dough arm to cover the severed tongue. Then, she takes a red string and uses it to connect the two tongues, saying... Because on that day you contested with one another, now the deity and dahlia has just cut off the tongues and therefore the words themselves of those days from you. The red string was then cut to sever the force of the words. Then the broken string was tossed into a fire to burn it away. Next, a fish was placed on the altar, and the medicine woman declares, this fish is the cattle of the sea, and as this fish is separated from the sea, now may the clients separate from the tongues and curses of those days. The fish was already dead, but then it was stabbed again to kill it ritualistically, then tossed in the fire. Next up was white and black wool rolled in fat, which, like collected evil words or something. It's not really clear what's going on with the wool rolled in fat. And then it got tossed into the fire, and would likely have burned quite satisfactorily. Next was salt, mussel, sheep oil, and wax, which would also have destroyed the hurtful words, or collected the hurtful words, then been destroyed, thus destroying the words along with the things. That is described again with images of tongues made of dough connected with red and blue string. Now, like the sexual impotence ritual, it's possible that these were not all meant to be done at once for one client, but rather the text is describing alternate methods of undertaking the ritual, though it is possible that all of these were meant to be performed when the client had the wealth or a particularly severe case. The next phase is the nailing phase. Seven tongues were made out of animal fat, and then each in turn is nailed down to a piece of wood as the medicine woman declared, Here are the tongues of that day on which you used to quarrel. Now, Father-Son God just hammered them down. Of course, literally speaking, it was the medicine woman that did the hammering, but this is quite common for religious leaders— including priests all the way down to what we might call small-time shamans like this one, to perform acts on behalf of the god as if their bodies were just vessels through which the designated god was acting. In Hittite ritual, the act of hammering a nail into something to fix it down apparently makes the essence of that thing depart from the mortal realm. Sometimes it turns the thing into an offering for the gods, and sometimes it sends it to the underworld, but being nailed to a wooden fixture of some sort, perhaps a signpost or an altar or just a stick in the ground, consecrated the thing being nailed to some sort of divine realm. The tongues that spoke evil words were being sent metaphorically down to the underworld, since, of course, no god would want it as an offering. With the foul tongues and the many words having been burned away and ritually pulled from the two quarreling people, two more dough dolls were placed on the altar to represent the clients. These dolls were washed in water to wash away any residual taint of the mean words, thus representationally cleaning the clients of these mean things. But we're still far from being done here, at least if we assume that the full ritual is being undertaken. As we are about to see, it's unlikely that most people did the whole thing since it would be massively expensive, but the text presents itself as a single ritual, which is how we have to take it as well. A white sheep was brought out, and over it the medicine woman called out, This is a substitute for you. May it be a substitute for your bodies. The curses are in the mouth and tongue. Then each client would spit into the sheep's mouth, transferring the sin of cursing onto the sheep. The sheep is then bled out, then buried to trap it in the underworld. This burial included bread and wine. Then the meat, bread, and wine together might serve as an offering to the gods. And before we continue, let's just take a note that I've already mentioned ritual purification with water, nailing things to a stick as a way of sending them to the gods or the afterlife or heaven, and using a sheep as a proxy for someone's sin, to take a sin away and then dispose of it. All three of these things may sound familiar to modern Christian practice, which isn't to say that modern Christianity is somehow an extension of Hittite religion, but rather that here in Hittite practice we're already seeing many of the religious symbols and much of the religious language that will continue through Judaism into the time of Christ already present. This is interesting what it means is perhaps debatable, but it's hard to miss, so I have to bring it up. Anyway, next, a black sheep is brought out, prayed over, spit into, then bled out, though this time the offerings are put into a fire that they might go upwards to the gods. Next up, a piglet gets some very telling words Behold, It is fattened with grass and grain, just as this little one will not see the sky and will not see the other piglets ever again. In that way, may the ritual's clients not see the venom and curses ever again. Then the piglet gets its mouth spit into before being killed and offered. Finally, and this is perhaps the worst part, a puppy is brought forward and ritually made into a substitute for the clients, then has its mouth spit into, and it's killed. It is the very innocence of the puppy that makes it valuable, for the sacrifice must involve the clients losing something good in exchange for their misdeeds. Or at least that's one interpretation. It's also possible that Dogs were, in some parts of Anatolia, considered ritually impure, and so they're putting the impure curses into an impure animal. Eh, who knows? Either way, we're killing puppies because somebody said bad words to each other. It's just how it goes if you're a Hittite. Now that the sacrifices are finished, the clients have offloaded their sin onto some scapegoat, literally. Not a goat, literally, but the same ritualistic thing as a scapegoat. Now, they need to be purified. Seven stones are set up, then kicked over by the clients, indicating their desire that the words of that day fall to the ground like the stone. Then they pull off their clothes, old clothes having been stained by the impurities of the quarrel, and the clothes are burned then all pass through a pair of fires, which forms sort of a metaphorical gate. With the new clothes and the passing through a doorway, the clients are now in a new state, different from how they once were. Finally, after a bit more ritual speaking, the clients, now fully purged of their hurtful words, are washed in water and natron, sort of a natural baking soda good for cleaning. The used wash water from this is then collected and sealed away in a jar with the statement that the coral has now been sealed away and the seal on the jar will never be broken. Now, even if we take this not as one massive ritual, but rather as a menu of options for the coral-solving ritual, this has all been quite dramatic. More to the point, this is just as much medicine as was Cantuzili's prayer to the sun god, and just as much medicine as the cure for sexual impotence. All three are expressions of religious devotion. All three are also magic. This is how things were done in the late Bronze Age, particularly in the North, where access to things like Babylonian and Egyptian surgeons and internal medicine experts were limited to basically the royal family and the extremely rich. And again, did it work? Well, it might look like a lot of playing pretend from a secular Western point of view, the fact is that prayer and ritual, when the involved person is actually participating in the show, may have in fact aided in the treatment and even curing of many ailments. I'm going to irritate a lot of people by saying this. I think I've irritated a number of people this show, but I think it's reasonably well demonstrated, even in modern times, that there's a psychological aspect of nearly every illness. Leaving aside the question of whether a god or gods can remove cancerous tumors, certain mental attitudes and beliefs can play a role in strengthening the body against even serious illness. And when you consider the fact that many illnesses, such as impotence or just not getting along with someone, can at times be completely psychological or psychosomatic, these sorts of therapies which cleanse a patient of guilt, sin, and worry are in fact valid treatments, so long as everyone involved is part of a culture in which these symbolic acts have powerful meanings. But... I do want to note that while the Hittites were not documenting cutting-edge internal surgeries like we saw back in Hammurabi's Babylon, where things like cataract surgery and clearing out rotted pus or infested internal organs seem to have had remarkably high success rates, there's pretty much no ancient society who didn't have reliable methods for stitching wounds, setting broken bones, and dealing with common physical injuries. They may even have had opium and marijuana for pain, though in the much less potent raw forms than the processed drugs people use today. But what the Hittites did have was an unusual amount of germaphobic fussiness. We discussed instructions texts last episode, but saved one of the most interesting ones for today. One from Arnuwanda's period lays forth what seems to be regular practice in both the temple and in royal palaces, that in certain matters hygiene was considered very important. It isn't just that the spaces for food preparation are meant to be clean at all times, kept free of live animals like dogs and pigs, and with the floors swept and the cooking surfaces wiped down, but even the people doing the food preparation were to be clean, with their hair and nails trimmed, and their bodies and clothes washed regularly. Even the plates and cups and silverware and whatever else must be kept clean. If it gets dirty, it must be washed, and if it gets really dirty, such as being touched by a dog or pig, then it must simply be thrown away. There are substantially more purity laws than just concern food, though. Even though this tablet is mostly concerned with the foods being offered to the gods, it takes a moment to remind everyone that intimate contact with women is fine in general, but people must bathe afterwards, and there is to be no intercourse at all within the temple or the palaces around it. The entire tablet's fairly long and belabors this purity point at length. Indeed, the only other thing it discusses are the many ways in which people can steal from or defraud the temple, which is, of course, threatened with the harshest of penalties. But fascinatingly, being dirty is in some cases penalized even more severely than cheating the gods out of tributes because the Hittites were absolutely obsessed with ritual purity. It wasn't just food either. The Hittite law code is full of provisions concerned with purity. If some livestock have been cleaned, perhaps in anticipation of slaughter, but then they get muddy afterwards, then these animals are no longer clean. And in this dirty state, they may die. And so the person who allowed them to get dirty is on the hook for compensation. This is the same section as a number of different kinds of theft for it was just as severe. There's another law prescribing a fine for, quote, being impure in a vat. While it isn't clear whether that means something like urinating in someone else's vat, or if it means some lesser defiling of literally any vat, including one that you own yourself, this sort of impurity was literally criminal. But of course, the very best part about the purity section in the laws is no fewer than 12 items governing deviant sexual activities, specifying death for any man who has intercourse with a cow, a sheep, his mother, his children, a pig, or a dog. Then numerous possibilities for incestuous couplings are detailed as to when it is and is not permitted. A man's stepmother is fair game if his father has died, as is a man's brother's wife if the brother has died. And indeed, in some cases, it may become obligatory to marry the widow of a dead brother, something known more commonly today as leveret marriage for its appearance in the Old Testament. Curiously, sex with a horse or mule is not a legal offense, but it does defile the man and prohibit him from ever becoming a priest or approaching the king's court for the rest of his life. Interestingly, it appears to have sometimes been the case that a man was on the receiving end of intercourse with animals, in essence, being raped specifically by oxen or pigs are mentioned. And in this case, the man will not be killed. Instead, his defilement will be transferred to a sheep, which will receive the punishment in the man's place. Of course, I don't just mention this because it's scandalously exciting, though it is that too. The point is that sanitation conditions in elite households were taken very seriously. Household waste was disposed of promptly into covered roadway ditches, which, being covered, makes them a step above some medieval cities. And it wasn't just dumped in those ditches, they had little pipes running from the house ...into these roadway ditches that were probably completely underground. Food was stored and prepared with care and bathing was frequent... ...both as part of the very frequent religious rituals and as part of everyday cleanliness. Wounds were washed... Sick people were washed. The clothes and items that sick people contacted were washed. And in a few places, we have indications that some sick people were kept in isolation because their impurity was known to spread through mere contact. Did the Hittites know about germ theory? Of course not. But either through a fussiness of character or through observation of the effects of sanitary conditions— Or likely both, the Hittites ensured for themselves a living environment where it was much less likely that they would become sick, at least if they could afford that sort of lifestyle. And as already mentioned, the much greater diversity of foods and better climate likely all combined to make a wealthy Hittite family perhaps some of the healthiest individuals of the Bronze Age. They may not have very good medical understanding, but it is possible, at least that they needed it a tad bit less than their southern neighbors. Anyway, I've been wanting to take a look at some of these issues for quite a number of episodes now, and with this we've been able to look at what I think is a fairly interesting aspect of Hittite society. Next week, we get back to the story, transitioning into the New Kingdom properly. Things are going to look bleak for our Anatolian heroes, but never fear, for there are glory days of well-documented exciting reigns ahead of us as we finally start to catch up everyone to the year 1300 BCE. So join us next time for some thrilling military victories, only some of which will be won by the Hittites themselves. Thank you for listening.